Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Good morning, Jim. Good to be back. Uh, it's beyond cliche now that we always say at the start of our podcast that there is so much to talk about, but really this week there is. I've got a suggested agenda, which to cite our second cliche, we'll never get through today. But obviously there have been at least four, maybe five central bank meetings this week that I can count. Uh, we've had a number of rate hikes on both sides of the Atlantic, and nothing from the Bank of Japan, which is in itself very significant in terms of what's happening to currency markets, to the yen. Um, world stock markets, at, as we speak, they've yet to, um, really, uh, in Europe and America anyway, to trade uh, Friday. But so far this week, they are down 5.7%, which, you know, for four days trading is a lot. Uh, there's a lot going on in bond markets. Both short-term interest rates and long-term interest rates are on the up. I mean, we've been used to zero government borrowing costs, the bond yield, for a long time. The last time I looked a few minutes ago, the 10-year German yield, key one for all of Europe, including Ireland, trading around 1.7%. That's been negative or zero for a long, long time. So this is a multi-year high in terms of yields. So that's equities and bonds. Lots of things going on in other asset markets, of course, not least cryptocurrencies. Again, as I look at my screen here, I see that Bitcoin is down about two thirds from its peak of last autumn. And um, I'm not going to do any victory laps. Well, I'll do a, I'll do a mini one anyway. Um, we have uh, been very sceptical about Bitcoin and other crypto stores of value. Uh, one of its key promises was that 
when inflation finally hits, because the conspiracy theorists of the crypto world often say to me that governments will inflate their debt problems away. Well, the inflation is here, but crypto is a store of value, which was the claim made by the enthusiasts, um, clearly isn't. So lots to talk about there, and I'd be very grateful for your thoughts on any or all of that. But the other items on my agenda, which I suspect, given how much I've spoken already, we won't get through. Fascinating article by Sebastian Barnes of the um, ABIFAC, um, the fiscal watchdog for Ireland. Uh, I'd love to think that he's been listening to the podcast because at various occasions over the last year and a bit, I've talked about the need to set up a sovereign wealth fund or a rainy day fund or some kind of fund in which some of the surplus corporation tax revenues could be stashed for when trouble hits, and he was recommending something similar. Uh, we've talked about house prices a lot on this podcast and connected to what I was talking about just now, asset prices, particularly interest rates and bond yields. Uh, there are signs of weakness in housing markets um, around the world. Um, in the US, the number of transactions, the, the actual amount of activity in housing is starting to fall. Prices aren't yet, um, and I say yet because I think that they will, uh, but going further afield in Australia, ANZ Bank is predicting Sydney house prices to fall 20% this year as a result of higher interest rates. And I think that there's more to come, and I, I know you've got strong views on housing as well. If we have time, I'd love to mention what's going on in the UK. The circus that is UK politics continues to go at full throat. Um, we've had another resignation from the higher reaches of Westminster this week. And if, as I say, we get a chance, I'll talk about that. And finally, if we get time for um, some mention of Ukraine, there's some fascinating data out of Germany this week to do with the amount of aid, money and arms promised to Ukraine, measuring it against the amount that's actually being delivered. And there are some surprises in those numbers. But I'll hand it back to you and perhaps give me your thoughts on the multiple central bank meetings, the multiple rate hikes the, the we've had this week and the market movements that I've described and indeed anything else that you'd like to say. Yeah, good morning, Chris. A pretty packed agenda there, all right. Um, I, would just, I just note this morning that the European Commission is planning to recommend that Ukraine and Moldova be granted candidate status for membership of the European Union. Uh, that is interesting. I think that is significant. Um, I also see a warning that should the Russian gas situation deteriorate further, that European gas stockpiles could run out in the middle of the winter at peak demand. So the Ukraine situation continues to bubble away in the background. And uh, that is feeding directly, obviously, into what central bankers are doing. Um, as you say, we've had at least five significant central bank meetings this week. Um, the European Central Bank met in emergency session and has put a new, what they call an anti-crisis tool, or they're putting it in place in order to help weaker countries in the euro area whose bond yields rise significantly. And this week, for example, ahead of that meeting, or at least before that meeting was announced, Italian bond yields went up over 4.2%. Uh, they're back down at 3.8% this morning um, and indeed were yesterday following the announcement by the European Central Bank of doing something uh, with a new, um, 
as I say, they call it an anti-crisis tool. So it is interesting to see government bond yields um, in the the slightly more peripheral bond markets in Europe rise significantly. Um, and that's reminiscent of what happened back in the 2009 to 2013 period when we had a significant eurozone crisis. OK, bond yields were at significantly higher levels than today and they rose significantly further. But it is interesting to see that volatility and nervousness and weakness bubbling away in the background in European bond markets. And I think should send out a very strong signal to policymakers in Europe about what could go wrong. But the other four central bank meetings, the Bank of Japan did nothing. Um, and the yen is now trading at just under 135 uh, yen to the dollar. Um, and that's a level that we haven't seen in a very, very long time. Um, I think for a long time we'd becoming, we had become accustomed to dollar yen trading around 100. So this is a significant weakening of the yen, which continues. Uh, the Swiss increased interest rates by a half of 1%. The Bank of England increased rates by a quarter of 1%. And of course, on Wednesday night, we saw the Federal Reserve increase rates by a whopping 75 basis points or three quarters of 1%. Um, I think that is the most significant rate increase seen in the States for over 30 years. And um, accompanying that U.S. announcement, uh, the Federal Reserve stressed how much attention it was paying to um, inflation indicators. But in a subsequent interview, Jay Powell, um, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, stated that um, at the moment and from for the foreseeable future, the Federal Reserve would be paying much more attention to short term inflation and economic indicators rather than taking a long-term perspective. So that just shows, and indeed, if, 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 if we didn't realise it already, but that just shows that the Federal Reserve is very much in panic mode at the moment. And uh, If I might interrupt you there, Jim, um, that says to me very strongly that the Fed doesn't know what it's doing. Um, yeah, ab- absolutely. There, there is an element of that. And, you know, in crisis mode is how I describe it. But yeah, it is indicative of a central bank that doesn't know what it's doing. Um, but I think it joins a lot of other central banks at the moment in not knowing what it's doing because, um, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to throw that sort of um, accusation at a central bank. But at the end of the day, uh, this is an incredible situation. You know, we, we've had 10 years of the pumping of massive liquidity into the financial system by central banks through quantitative easing. We had the COVID-related supply side and supply chain problems that caused inflation to escalate towards the end of last year and the early weeks of this year. And of course, then we've had the Ukraine situation and, you know, commodity price inflation particularly has absolutely intensified since then. But it is clear that central banks like the Federal Reserve are struggling in the face of these challenges. And there seems to be a view taken at this stage that central banks believe that they are going to have to engineer significant slowdown in economic activity, uh, perhaps recession. And the question is, are we talking about mild recession or something more significant? But central bankers clearly starting to believe that they will have to engineer recession in order to try 
and bring this inflation situation under control. And um, I suppose that sort of short term trade off um, is one that we'll have to accept and is probably the sensible way to go at this stage, given the dangers of inflation becoming ingrained in the system. Jim, you say it's sensible, but I, I have my doubts because I think they're failing to communicate properly within, in terms of what it is they're trying to achieve and what they're actually going to do to achieve it. And the reason why I say that is that I think it's very simple. Um, and they, if I was running a central bank's communication strategy now on either side of the Atlantic, I would be saying, firstly, there's nothing we can do about oil or commodity prices, nothing at all. Um, and if that was the only problem that we faced... As a society, as an economy, we just have to take that on the chin because we do not have the tools in the kit to lower oil prices or to lower wheat prices. That depends on factors beyond our remit, beyond the tools that we have in our toolbox. What we can control is something called core inflation, which is domestically generated inflation. It's called core inflation. It's called inflation X food and energy. That's what we're going to target. We want that back down to 2 to 3%, and we will continue to raise interest rates until core inflation is down to 2 to 3%. If the European Central Bank said that, for example, it wouldn't have to do very much, and it wouldn't be getting these peripheral bond, mar <coughs> excuse me, these peripheral bond markets excited about a rerun of the Eurozone debt crisis, because core inflation in Europe isn't much above that level that I cited. It is, it is quite a bit higher in the United States, but even so, on both sides of the Atlantic, core inflation is well below actual inflation because most of the actual inflation in the United States, or say about half of it, is down to something the Fed can do nothing about. It can raise interest rates to 100% if you like, and it still wouldn't get oil prices down in my view, or it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't get them down very much. Um, only if they engineer a global recession will they get commodity prices down. Maybe that's what they're up to, I don't know. But I think the communication strategy is very poor. I think it's one of the reasons why markets are in turmoil is that nobody really understands what it is that they're trying to do. Do you think that's unfair? Uh, no, I don't think it's unfair. I mean, we've we've had this discussion several times in recent weeks about the logic behind the significant tightening of interest rates because the inflation problem, first and foremost, is caused by um, a surge in commodity prices, particularly energy-related commodity prices. But more recently, food commodity prices are starting to contribute and I think will contribute contribute very strongly to further inflation over the coming months. But um, and, and so increasing interest rates to tackle a supply-side problem um, is a pretty blunt instrument. And I agree with you that um, if there was different communication, if they stressed... Um, their targets in relation to inflation, excluding food and energy, which is what we call core inflation. Yeah, I think that would be a sensible strategy. But um, it, it strikes me that um, as well as tackling core inflation and trying to kill inflation expectations, central bank, and they're not communicating that very well, obviously, but as well as doing that, central banks um, are probably also trying to engineer a recession that would reduce demand for um, commodities. And of course, um, wouldn't be that difficult to engineer a global recession because after all, um, the United States is the largest economy in the world. So if the US were to go into recession because of interest rate actions by the Federal Reserve, China, the second largest economy in the world, is already 
um, in under significant pressure. You know, it, it is struggling economically from what we can understand. And um, obviously, it's it's always difficult to believe what we hear coming out of China in terms of economic data. But there would appear to be indications of a significant slowdown in economic activity there. So there we have the two largest economic blocks in the world, um, not too far from recession. And of course, in the euro area, uh, given that eurozone growth and particularly eurozone demand is significantly weaker than in the United States, for example, um, it wouldn't take a lot of tightening from the European Central Bank to engineer um, a recession in the euro area. So you you said that, you know, short of engineering a global recession, there's not a lot they could do about commodity prices. But it wouldn't be that difficult, I think, to engineer a global recession if that's what they want to do. So I, I think there's there's a twin approach here. Um, there's a move to try and reduce the demand for commodities, but there is also um, this desire to make sure that inflation and inflation expectations do not become embedded in the system. Um, I go back to a quote I've used many times here from an economist, Michael Bruno, who said many years ago that the persistence of inflation increases with the rate of inflation, um, basically meaning that as the inflation rate rises, it starts to become embedded in people's behaviour and that in turn causes inflation to rise and to become more deeply ingrained in the system. So it's a it's a challenging one at the moment and certainly um, a lot of what's going on is very reminiscent um, for those of a certain age of what happened in the 1970s on a couple of occasions, 73 and again in 79, where we got a serious energy supply side shock caused by war again, of course, uh, that caused a significant surge in inflation, forced central banks to increase interest rates aggressively and uh, deliver global recession. And indeed, Paul Volcker, the chairman of the Federal Reserve in the early 80s, um, you know, he used interest rates very aggressively to try to kill inflation in the United States. Uh, but it caused a very deep and meaningful recession in that country. So um, I think we need to watch central banks very carefully over the next few months. And we're going to see, presumably, the European Central Bank deliver a 25 basis point increase in July. And the ECB has also given us forward guidance suggesting that rates could rise there by a half percent in um, September. So big stuff going on. Yes. The ECB has a lot of form in this regard of making complete balls of things. It has. After the last the great financial crisis, it raised interest rates by too much too soon. Um, Helped provoke the European sovereign debt crisis that affected um, all sorts of countries, not least Ireland. And um, are they at risk of doing the same thing again with with a cack-handed policy? Because they haven't actually raised interest rates yet in any meaningful way. They've talked a lot about it. Um, but so far, all they have done, all they have achieved is a peripheral bond market problem with echoes of that sovereign debt crisis. So, so far, so good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I totally agree with you. The European Central Bank um, has a track record of making balls of stuff. Um, but w- one hopes that when one makes a significant mistake, uh, that one learns from it and that one doesn't repeat the same mistake again. Um, but. You know, it remains to be seen what, what's going to happen. But I, I thought the European Central Bank 
and indeed other central banks tried to make it clear in recent times that they would try and you know use forward guidance to influence people's expectations so while the european central bank has spoken about increasing interest rates by 75 basis points between july and september it obviously it has done nothing yet um, other than as you say force long-term bond yields up um, in a situation that as i said is reminiscent of the eurozone debt crisis of a few years back but surely the european central bank is doing this in order to try and convince us, the public in Europe, that it is going to be aggressive in trying to kill off inflation in the hope that that sort of guidance will influence our behaviour. And so, in other words, it becomes self, self-fulfilling. Um, I, I'm just... I'm just not sure what else central banks can do in the current environment. I mean, we, we, we've said it many times and, you know, we, we've certainly got some criticism on this podcast over the view. But, um, you know, you could conceivably construct a set of circumstances where the European Central Bank would do nothing on the interest rate front, that there's no need, that demand isn't out of control in the euro area. There is still an unemployment rate of 6.8%. Um so anything the European Central Bank does on the interest rate front, you could describe from an economic perspective as being overkill and representing a policy mistake. Uh, but when you're faced with um, a headline inflation rate of around 8.1% as it is at the moment in the euro area, um, well, I suppose that calls for crisis response. Not if you're a, a sensible central bank. I think... Your sympathy for their dilemma is well put, well argued, but um, I'm afraid I only share it up to a point um, because I don't think it's, I think it's a complete mess because it's not clear to me and I think to many market participants what the heck it is they're trying to achieve. The European economy, you talked about unemployment being high. Um, In old-fashioned economic jargon, the output gap is still pretty hefty. I mean, the European economy is not operating anywhere close to full capacity, unlike... Well, that's what I was saying, Chris. You could construct very easily a set of circumstances where or a a, a thought process where the European Central Bank does nothing on the interest rate front, nor does it need to. Um, But that's clearly not how it's going to respond in an environment of 8.1% inflation. So we know that European interest rates are going up. That seems pretty set in stone now. Um, so we've we've already taken two thirds of this podcast um, when we've got lots more to get. Well, it, it is so, infl- uh, inflation and interest rates are definitely the biggest story at the moment. So uh, yeah, yeah. So on that on that theme, um, can you tell me what you think of that? Uh, for example, my remark about Australian house prices forecast to fall twenty percent. My view that these higher interest rates are going to have an impact on house prices globally. And in some countries, it could be nasty. And tell me what you think. Um, Well, you know, short and long term interest rates are probably the greatest impactor on house prices. Um, You know, we've we've seen through history that when short and long term interest rates rise, particularly when bond yields rise, long term rates, uh, that that does tend to have a significant impact on house price inflation. And uh, that is quite a significant forecast from ANZ in um, Australia about a, 
your 20% plus correction in Australian house prices. Uh, this week in Ireland, uh, we got the April house price data, which showed a slight moderation in the year-on-year growth rate, uh, but it still shows that there's strong um, underlying price pressures in the Irish housing market. And um, I, I think the Irish housing market is probably different than many housing markets at the moment. There's just such, uh, or maybe not, but there is such an imbalance between demand and supply in the market. Um, you know, I've I've thrown out the stats before that between 2011 and 2021, we delivered an average of 12,123 houses per annum in this country. We should be delivering, uh, depending on who you listen to, but around 40,000 houses per annum. And, and I think that when we start to see the first census results emanating from Ireland over the coming weeks, um, I think inflation, sorry, uh, population growth is going to be stronger than we're currently building in. And as a consequence, the demand for housing is probably stronger than that 40,000 house price completion target would suggest. And um, that supply demand imbalance uh, could in one sense cause Irish house prices to continue to be strong, um, despite the fact that logic would suggest they should start to come off. Um, I was speaking to somebody in the last 24 hours involved in an input to the construction industry who was saying that over the last month, um, what they are seeing is a significant slowdown in house building activity. Um, And that's because builders are struggling with higher input costs and the lack of availability of materials. So they're pulling off site, they're slowing down house building. And of course, if house building slows down, that just exacerbates the demand supply imbalance in the Irish market. So um, I'm very confused, actually, Chris, and wouldn't be the first time for me in relation to where house price inflation is going to go in this country over the next 12 months, because all of the logic would suggest to me that house price inflation here should moderate significantly, given what's happening with short and long term interest rates, given what's likely to happen to the global economy, which in turn will have inevitably have some impact on the Irish economy. Um, all of that logic would suggest house price inflation here should moderate. But on the other side of the coin, um, that demand supply imbalance is still very strong in the market. And there's also a lot of personal savings in Ireland at the moment that is certainly driving housing demand as well. So it, it's it's a, mis- it's a mixed picture. And I'm probably suggesting uh, I haven't a clue where Irish house prices are going. But I go back to the point that I've made several times to the point of boredom at this stage that logic would suggest that the Irish house market should lose some heat over the next 12 months and i say bring it on that's exactly what the irish housing market requires at this stage because the sort of price levels we've attained um are just totally unsustainable in my view are economically um, and socially dangerous i would love to see house prices come back to make them more affordable again well i i think they're going to i'll I'll sort out your clarity problem jim your confusion problem and assert that I think house prices globally are, by this time next year, will be a bit lower than they are now, possibly a good bit lower. I don't disagree with you globally. Ireland is the one I'd have more concerns about. I accept that there are different circumstances in different countries that that may make that price fall different in different countries, but I, I do think the direction of travel is clear. 
Moving on, Jim, in what time that we've got left to us, there was a fascinating article in the Irish Times this week, yesterday I think it was, by the head of IFAC, the fiscal watchdog, saying that we need a rainy day fund. Um, What do you think of those proposals? I mean, they're ones that we indeed, on this podcast, have made on repeated occasions. Yeah, I I think um, there's always a huge temptation for governments to spend windfall taxes that come in um, and, you know, that's exactly what we saw in the run up to the crash in the Irish economy in 2007, 2008. Um, government spent aggressively on the back of um, construction related taxes that ultimately proved unsustainable. And uh, it's quite extraordinary if you look at a long term graph of tax revenue collection in Ireland, you know, the collapse that occurred in 2007, 2008 was very significant. And it was almost exclusively, at least initially, down to the collapse in construction related uh, taxation. Okay. And, um, but the problem, of course, was that during those years in the run up 2007, 2008, when construction related tax revenues were booming, when we were building 96,000 houses, back in 2006. Um, obviously, government spending behaviour suggested a belief that that sort of level of house completions was going to continue forever. And unfortunately, uh, tax revenues collapsed and um, we ended up with a serious hole in the public finances and really not a lot to show for those windfall tax revenues. So here we are again. Um, the one area of tax revenue collection, as you've alluded to, where you could certainly see windfall tax collection happening at the moment is on the corporation tax side. We collected around 16 billion last year based on trends in the first five months of this year. It is likely we'll collect more than six, probably 18 billion in corporation tax receipts. Um, and of course, those corporation tax receipts are outside of our domestic control in the sense that they will be determined by the performance of these global multinationals that are so important to the Irish economy. They will be determined by decisions that may or may not be taken by those um, multinational corporations in terms of where they continue to carry out activity and so on. So you'd, you'd have to say there is a question mark over the sustainability of a significant portion of those corporation tax revenues. So I think it makes eminent sense to do one of two things with those windfall tax revenues. Number one, you actually use those revenues to improve the infrastructure of our economy. So in other words, try and bring our health system up to first world status, which is where it's not at the moment, uh, through structural change rather than throwing money at the problem. But, you know, investment in health infrastructure, um, get rid of the HSE, and replace it with an organization that's fit for purpose that actually functions properly in delivering a health service. Um, that's one option. And, and also, of course, um, IT infrastructure and so on. The second option would be uh, you create a sovereign wealth fund of the type that Norway has done so successfully on the back of um, oil revenues over many years and has now built up a huge sovereign fund that really does insulate Norway from any economic difficulties um, it might attain. So I think there is a huge, huge amount of sense in that argument that we should be using these funds to build up some sort of um, buffer for the economy. But of course, 
the political economy of all of that is challenging. Uh, we have a general election, most probably in 2024. Um, Sinn Féin continues to perform very strongly in the opinion polls. Uh, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, the parties of government along with the Greens, are struggling in opinion polls. So with uh, a couple of years to go to a general election, there's always the temptation to just throw money at everything um, for political purposes. So it flies in the political economy of creating that sort of sovereign wealth fund um, is never straightforward in this country. But I, I'd, I'd love to see it happening, but I wouldn't hold my breath. Yeah, I think that, as always, Jim, you've made a fantastic practical uh, description or analysis of um, some very clear economic theory. For once, economics is very clear about what you do in principle with what we call permanent versus temporary tax revenues. Permanent revenues, you can do what you like with. Um, that those are political decisions. It's taxes that you're confident are going to keep coming in, more or less. Um, it's a political decision on how you spend them. But temporary ones, you don't spend. You do not spend particularly on uh, items of spending uh, that you know are going to be recurring or permanent. Uh, so it's, it's a simple piece of logic. Don't spend temporary revenues on spending commitments that become permanent, which of course is what Ireland did back in the day. And there's a uh, a fear that we're doing the same thing again. What you should do with those temporary revenues is invest them, save them um, in some shape or form. And you've outlined some of the alternatives there. Uh, and in the case of Ireland, I think that there is a strong case now for running budget surpluses, for reducing the amount of borrowing that we're going to have to do at these higher interest rates that now prevail. Um, keep that, that means the cost of debt servicing is going up. The era of free money is at an end. So I think all of these proposals, both in the very clear practical sense that you described there and the theoretical sense that I've just described, very important. And I think that uh, it's a bit late in the day for them to be thinking about doing this. We've been urging it for years. Others have been urging it for years. So um, it, it, it's better late than never, is, is what I would say. Mm. And, um, and Jim, another, running... Sorry, another slight angle to that, Chris, is the fact that um, okay, it remains to be seen how the OECD G20 Global Corporation Tax Deal that was agreed last year, which was due to be implemented on the 1st of January 2023, it remains to be seen what the status of that is at the moment because countries like Hungary and Poland and Europe um, are opposed to it. Um, it's going to be very difficult to get Congress in the United States to vote for it in the current US political climate. But So I, I'm, I'm not saying that tax deal is going to happen but I think it is clear that Ireland's relative corporation tax advantage for foreign direct investment is going to be eroded to some extent over the next few years. So that means there's going to be a much bigger, heavier onus on addressing those other elements of competitiveness, the non-tax elements. So it's, it's infrastructure, it's the whole environment in which these multinationals operate. We need to address those non-tax elements. So, yeah, there's, 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 there's interesting stuff to be said there, I think. But sorry, Chris, I interrupted you. I presume you wanted to wrap up by telling us a little bit about what's happening in the UK political scene at the moment. I'd like to hear it. Well, the latest is that Johnson has lost his ethics advisor, an important role in government, and the suggestion is that he's not going to bother to have an ethics advisor going forward. What's the point of having an ethics advisor when in fact 
you have no ethics. And that is the, the, the descent into political abyss that we are in in the UK at the moment. Um, and I could obviously bang on about this as I do regularly on this podcast and on indeed in other fora about how uh, the needs of the Conservative Party are such that the needs of the country are in opposition to each other now and the lies and the breaking of international law. Uh, the, 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 the one thing I would say about the resignation of the ethics advisor is that it was truly weird in, in the sense of what he resigned about. And it was because he'd been asked to rule on some trade uh, stuff to do with steel tariffs, which is not his remit at all. It's not in his terms of reference. There's nothing ethical. It's all a question of law when it comes to tariffs. And um, what the British government was going to do was break WTO rules with respect to steel tariffs. And uh, he, he basically said, nothing to do with me, Gov, um, which is absolutely right. And, but it was truly weird that he was asked the question in the first place because the government clearly knew they were going to break WTO rules, international law, if you like, um, and asked their ethics advisor about this. So it's truly strange. And I suspect there is going to be more from this very esoteric uh, resignation. Um, I'll wrap up, Jim, now. I think we've probably gone over time yet again. But I just wanted to draw attention to some stats that the Kiel Institute of Economics in Germany have produced for commitments to Ukraine and deliveries on those commitments. And various countries have uh, promised lots and lots of countries have delivered. Um, the UK has promised X and they've delivered 90% of X. Um, the US has promised the most in absolute terms uh, and has yet to deliver on all of it. But in absolute terms, it, it has delivered the most. Germany is down near the bottom of the league table, ironically, at about 30-35% of promises have so far been honoured by Germany. And one interesting statistic is that Lithuania has delivered its entire stock of tanks to Ukraine, uh, as in one. So uh, different countries are doing different things in, in different ways. But Germany's position of being a laggard in the whole support thing for Ukraine is, is starkly illustrated by these numbers. And I find that interesting. So I'll shut up there, Jim, and wish you well, unless you've got anything else you want to say. No, Chris, um, have a good weekend. I'm just off to Galway now to speak at a Galway Chamber of Commerce lunch. So always nice to head west. Um, the day is nice here. So um, okay, buddy. have a good weekend. Talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.